Friends, hello and welcome to the fourth podcast lecture of the June Intensive class. In the last episode, I talked about the beginning and ending of Paul's letter to the Romans, and I suggested that these book-ending texts can help to guide our understanding of the whole letter. In particular, the beginning of the letter, to which you all paid such close attention in your worksheets, shows that Romans communicates good news about God's Son, Jesus Christ, who is the proof of God's faithfulness to promises made to Israel. Somehow, too, these promises can benefit people who are not literal descendants of Israel, Gentiles. I hope that you can keep those things in mind whenever Romans comes up from here on out. Romans equals good news about God centered on Jesus Christ, God's faithfulness to promise, Israel's God, and the Gentiles. Today, I hope to get more into the weeds of Paul's arguments in Romans, at least in Romans chapters 1 through 8. I certainly won't clear everything up, and there are always going to be passages that are tough to understand. A few of them, like Romans 1, I hope to revisit in another podcast dedicated to some of the issues you raised in Monday's class, like Paul and women, or Paul and universal salvation. Thank you for expressing interest in some of those topics. But I do hope today to show you how Romans spirals. I'm borrowing that word, by the way, from a chapter by the Paul scholar Leander Keck, entitled What Makes Romans Tick? Romans spirals. There is forward movement, but it also retraces and overlaps and enriches itself. Paul makes a parallel argument three times in a row in Romans chapters 1 through 8, and each time he delves more deeply into the problem of sin that God's action to address it in Jesus Christ answers. For our purpose of learning to preach good news from the text of the New Testament, these three theological panels, this gospel triptych, give us at least three different ways of articulating what God has done on our behalf three different pictures with different actors and different verbs. The first part of the spiral runs from Romans 1 through chapter 3, verse 26. If you look closely at chapter 1, you can see that it begins with a kind of introduction. This is what your worksheet from Monday focused on. Paul identifies himself as a slave of Jesus Christ and he speaks to the gospel message that is the epicenter of his apostleship. Then in verses 16 and 17, he gives a kind of mini summary of the gospel. He isn't ashamed of it. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who has faith, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, in that message, the righteousness of God is revealed. Or, as the Greek says, the righteousness of God is apocalyptitai. Apocalyptitai. It is being apocalypsed. It's the exact word, a verb, from which we get our English word apocalypse. To paraphrase a bit, Paul is saying that this good news message apocalypses or discloses the righteousness, which is to say the faithfulness of God. So once more, Paul is an apocalyptic thinker. And the apocalypse doesn't end there. The very next verse begins the first part of the spiral. It is the first panel in the gospel triptych, 
that these first eight chapters of Romans describe. Paul says in verse 18, The wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness. Again, the key word in question here is identical to the one in the preceding verse, verse 17. The wrath of God is being apocalypsed. The rest of the chapter then narrates a decline, a downfall. Notice that the human failing consists in this chapter in not honoring God and not giving thanks to God. This is important because of where Romans will eventually end. Think of chapter 15 with its crescendo of Jews and Gentiles glorifying and praising and honoring God together. Think also of the constant references to boasting or not boasting throughout the letter. Chapter 1 kickstarts that refrain. The first human problem that Romans mentions is not honoring God as God, not boasting in God, but rather transferring that honor to created things. For Paul, this is probably the quintessential problem of the Gentile nations. Unlike Israel, they continue to worship images resembling human beings or birds or four-footed animals. And the sexual transgressions that Paul spells out at the end of the chapter also probably belong to the repertoire of sins that Jews commonly associated with their Gentile neighbors. I'll have more to say about this chapter in the next podcast. For now, remember that God gave them up. God surrendered these Gentiles into the hands of their passions. Chapter 2 of Romans adds a new dimension to this first stage of the spiral. Here, Paul brings in the law, the instruction given by God through Moses to the children of Israel. But even God's good provision of the law only complicates the scenario. Verse 17 imagines a different kind of boasting problem, not honoring idols, but boasting in oneself and one's practice of law-keeping. It's not clear that Paul has Jews in mind here rather than Gentiles. Possibly he's imagining Gentiles who, like verse 17 says, quote, call themselves Jews, that is, Gentile God-fearers, some of whom would even have undergone circumcision. Even though the law causes problems, at least to such Gentiles who try to use it, Paul still reiterates in chapter 3 that God's faithfulness is not nullified. The first panel of the triptych comes to a close in chapter 3, verse 9 and following. Jews and Gentiles are alike under the power of sin. And Paul tells the good news in verse 21 and following. In the face of human boasting, whether in idols or in themselves, God puts forward a sacrifice of atonement in Jesus Christ. That's verse 25, a divine action, if ever there was one. Verse 26 says that this was to prove God's righteousness. The result, as verse 27 tells it, is that boasting is excluded. The first stage of the spiral thus speaks of human sin in terms of boasting and idolatry and passions. God's response is to interpose Jesus Christ as an atoning sacrifice. Chapter 4 continues the theme of not boasting by reminding its Gentile readers of Abraham's example. Before he was circumcised, Abraham trusted that God would be faithful to promise, and that is what mattered for making him right in God's eyes. I'll read verse 20. No distrust 
made Abraham waver concerning the promise of God. But he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God, being fully convinced that God was able to do what he had promised. So Abraham there is doing exactly what the Gentiles in chapter 1 did not do, honoring, glorifying God. He is glorifying God specifically by trusting in God's promise. Paul says that his Gentile readers can share in Abraham's same right relationship to God by joining in Abraham's posture of trust in God's faithfulness, which for them is now manifest in Jesus Christ, especially in his resurrection. As I've said in a previous podcast, Jesus' resurrection is for Paul the proof of God's faithfulness. God comes through for Israel and the world because he raised this one man from the dead. The second stage of the spiral then begins in chapter 5. This and the following chapter are the topic of your Wednesday worksheet. Many of the same words and themes from the previous chapters reappear. There's plenty of boasting. Verse 2, boasting in our hope of sharing the glory of God. Verse 11, boasting in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. But there are also some new motifs. God's love is poured out in our hearts through the Holy Spirit, an agency we have not heard about until now in the letter. We hear once again about Christ's death and its reconciling power. But things really take a twist in verse 12. If you thought we were done talking about sin and God's saving response, then think again. This verse returns to the story of sin. Only now, it is not a matter of boasting, but of presence. Sin came into the world. Sin multiplied. Sin reigned as king. Gaventa's chapter that we read in preparation for this week emphasized the personal character of these sentences. Sin sounds like not an act that humans commit, but rather like a being. More like a demonic power, such as we find in the book of Revelation. And the sidekick of sin is death. And again, Paul speaks good news here. But now he does not use the language of atonement or reconciliation. Now he speaks of the gift. Somehow the free gift of God that answers human domination under the power of sin, coincides with the righteous act of one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. You'll remember that in the first stage of the spiral, the first panel of the gospel triptych, Paul thought that the law, the Torah, brought about some unforeseen consequences. Instead of solving the human boasting problem, boasting in idols, some people figured out a way to boast in their law-keeping instead. Here again at the end of chapter 5, Paul says that the law came in with the result that the trespass multiplied. He'll have more to say about that specific problem later in chapter 7, when he speaks in depth about how sin hijacks the good law of God. But for now, just notice 
the ways that his argument really does run parallel in each of these subsequent retellings. In chapter 6, though, Paul lines out a striking prognosis. The only way to escape the overwhelming domination of these powers of sin and death is to die. Their control over this present evil realm is so complete that only passing away releases someone from their grip. But, and here his argument is very radical, he says that Jesus Christ did die and was raised from the dead. Consequently, death, that is this demonic power of death, no longer has dominion over him, Jesus Christ. Instead, Christ is utterly free, utterly loosed from these enslaving powers and free to serve God. Christ is free. And mysteriously, Paul says, his addressees and readers share in Christ's death. We too who have been baptized and joined to his death can reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to God, available to God. Instead of being automatons programmed to obey the dictates of these demonic agencies, we can now offer our bodies as instruments to righteousness. So we have here the first two panels of the triptych. Both talk about a problem, but they identify it quite distinctly. Not boasting in God and subjection to passions in the first telling versus domination by superhuman forces in the second telling. And both panels articulate good news concerning God's son, Jesus Christ. Atoning sacrifice in the first, in chapter three, and then in the second, kind of participation in Christ's own freedom. Chapter 7 begins the third stage of the spiral, and it returns to the topic of the law in a big way. We'll talk about it more in our work together on Thursday, since our tutorial will focus on Romans chapter 8. But suffice it here to say, Paul's third version of the good news story, the third panel of the triptych, is one of exorcism. Exorcism. The Holy Spirit, which was mentioned back in chapter 5, but really comes through here in chapter 8, the Holy Spirit drives out the inhabiting principle of death. This, chapter 8, is the capstone telling of the same gospel story, but now in terms of the Spirit's emancipating and unbinding. Again, by way of review, for Paul, God does a number of things in Jesus Christ. Atoning for sin, yes, but also, and in more detail, uniting believers with Jesus' death and hence with his freedom from sin's domination. And also, casting out the law or principle of sin and death from the human bodies they had possessed, replacing them with God's own holy and life-giving spirit. In all three panels, the law presents a problem. Humans leverage it to boast in that first telling. Sin hijacks it to bring forth covetousness in that second telling. And lastly, as we'll see in Romans chapter 9, it seems as though the word of God had failed. 
since Paul's kindred in the family of Israel mostly did not accept Jesus. And in all three of those cases, Paul is eager to insist the law is holy, just, and good, and that God is true to God's word, even if every person is a liar. That's all for today's podcast. We'll speak more in person on Thursday and Friday about the remaining chapters in Paul's letter to the Romans. I also intend to release an extra bonus podcast, not on our schedule for the week, to say something about the issues you raised in class on Monday. For now, let me just point out that Romans chapter 5 has some important verses for thinking through Paul's view of salvation and its scope. Who is saved and who is not? In some parts of this chapter, Paul's argument doesn't make sense unless all humans are included in God's saving work through Jesus Christ. Think again of verse 18. Just as one man's trespass led to condemnation for all, so one man's act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all. For just as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Or again, just consider that Paul wants everywhere to claim that the sin and suffering of this world doesn't even compare to the weight of God's glory. The gift of God is not like the trespass. Its effect and its reach is more than the trespass. So on that note, friends, thank you again for listening. I look forward to being with you, and I'll see you soon.